Welcome to another exciting episode of the Business of Digital podcast, featuring your hosts, Matt Siltala and Dave Rohr. Hey guys, excited to have everyone join us on another one of these Business of Digital podcast episodes. Um, I think we got Dave over there. I'm going to catch him off guard because I saw that we, he, he put himself on mute. I love doing that to him, but uh, how's it going, Dave? It's going beeping well. I, I wanted to, to just get that out of there because we're going to hear beeping today from Dave. <laughs> Dave I'm, I'm pretty much doomed all summer. That's you are. just but. what it is. Well, let's talk about the good stuff that, uh, you know, the, the good news for today. We actually have a, a special guest. I'm very excited to um, talk with Amanda, Amanda Orson, head of North America at Curve. And Amanda, I do appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, talk a you know, talk with us this morning. So welcome. Thank you for having me. And so um, before we really jump into anything, uh, maybe just take a few minutes and let people know exactly what you want us to know about you and, and what head of North America at Curve means. And uh, we'll just go from there. Sure. So uh, I'll start with the latter first. Head of North America at Curve means that my job is to launch and expand Curve, which is a UK-based fintech company into the United States. Curve is uh, $250 million company in the UK. We have over a million customers and over 800,000 cards issued. Um, basically, it's an all your cards in one proposition in the UK. Right now, we're working on what that product construct will look like specifically for the US. Our regulations, as you might imagine, are a little bit different. And uh, yeah, we hope to launch uh, in beta at the end of this year. The waitlist is currently open and a full consumer launch will probably be at the top of next year. Awesome, that's great. Well, I'm going to hand it over to Dave and uh, let Dave kick this off and what we wanted, you know, we're doing this little, uh, um, basically this leadership campaign over the last several weeks and uh, um, go for it, Dave, just jump in. Yep. So Amanda did something that I thought about doing um, to an extent. And then when I realized that my summers for four years would be gone, if I did go to West Point, I quickly ran away. <laughs> to which you laugh because you know why. <laughs> Yeah, but you went to you have an interest. Your background long ago, um, and even to now, this day, since you are a thank you by the way, a a um, volunteer firefighter EMS. Which one is it? Firefighter or EMS or both? So I'm qualified as both. I actually have been a firefighter since, uh, oh gosh, I guess for six years now. Um, but I just got my EMT uh, qualification in 2019. Thank you for that, by the way. Um, but you're also went to Citadel. And so from a leadership and just the training that you get from the military and from firefighting and stuff, that's a whole different kind of training and background and mentoring and all sorts of stuff that goes along with it that most of us do not get. Would you say it's helped you, hurt you, been interesting along the way, good, bad? I So I'm probably an outlier in that I fit those kinds of environments like a round peg and a round hole, uh, which is to say they're almost accelerative to my natural, um, my natural way of being. I tend to be a pretty disciplined person. Uh, I don't have a problem making my bed in the morning. That, that kind of stuff is, is pretty normal for me. Uh, what I will say, it was very good. So let's talk about the Citadel first. The Citadel is a four-year military school. It's one of two state-supported completely military schools. Virginia Military Institute in Lexington is the other one. 
uh, left in the United States. There are, of course, cores of cadets at Virginia Tech, Norwich University, Texas A&M as well, but it's not quite the same experience because you also have people not in uniform in your classroom. The Citadel and VMI don't have that. Um, because it's state supported, it means that you pay for your hazing, unlike West Point or uh, the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy or the Coast Guard Academy. Um, and most people, you know, despite that, do end up actually serving in the military. Uh, probably something like a third during times of war, uh, which we've been in now for a protracted period, end up getting a commission in one of the U.S. military service branches. But the difference between the state-supported colleges and uh, West Point or one of the service academies is that those branches vary. We had people that went to the Air Force, Marine Corps, obviously, um, Army, Navy, uh, every, serv every service branch is represented. So what the Citadel was fantastic for, uh, which is not something that I understood or appreciated in the moment, but has served me really well in the time since, is I happened to be there as one of the very earliest classes of women, and matriculation was an issue. Um, it was actually a public issue. We were in the news a little too often. Um, and the Corps of Cadets was really trying to find itself. It was trying to figure out how it was going to change and evolve with the times. It was a very important moment uh, it was an important moment in the school's history, but it was also an important moment for me personally to sort of be a part of and to watch and to see what works because I learned how to navigate a fairly political system early. That's been a huge service. Um, I also learned how to form relationships and alliances with people that didn't necessarily agree with me or see eye to eye. Um, and that has served me super well in the time since. So it's not exactly the kind of military uh, discipline leadership question answer that I think that you were looking for, but those kinds of ways of, of working or learning how to be collaborative despite difference have been extremely valuable lessons. No, I think that is, I, I, because I, I can't even imagine being in a battlefield or being you know in a firefight, whether you two got along the other day or last week, or you really don't like you know Joe or Sally or whoever it is, you are all there, and if someone doesn't do their job, someone can get hurt or die. Yep, And absolutely. so to navigate the political and, you know, in a business standpoint, we have to get this project done. I really don't like working with, you know, that person from IT. They really don't like me. But we're, our butts are on the line if we don't get this project done. So... Um, and how do you take that, that navigating the political and networking with the other people? What does that look like in a in, in whether it's curve or in some of your previous roles? Well, I mean, uh, it definitely makes me much more mission driven. It also, I think, is very level setting, right? Nothing that I do today in my chair in my home office is going to kill someone. Nothing that I make, like no choice that I make today. Uh, could seriously harm somebody. Like, uh, as a volunteer firefighter, I work on uh, a crew that's called a duty crew, which is to say the volunteers actually serve shifts alongside what are full-time firefighters, both here and elsewhere. And you know, on any given shift, a good example from last fall, we went to a smell of gas, uh, a gas leak at a commercial building that does um, metal sheet manufacturing, like giant giant metal sheet manufacturing facility in a really serious gas leak. On your way there, you realize as a firefighter that if this is bad and this goes bad, a boom is fatal and there's really not too much you can do about it. Um, 
your firefighting protective gear is meant to withstand a lot of things, but explosion is not one of them. And having that sort of uh, reference point and then going back into whatever protracted negotiation or, you know, internal dispute or company politic thing you might possibly have to deal with. It just brings it right down to where it really needs to be, which is an issue, a temporary one between two people that may or may not disagree. But at the end of the day, it's just a disagreement and we can get through it and past it. Nothing. There are no serious consequences on the other side of it. I think emotion in meetings often overtakes the logic or any data. Absolutely. Um, Matt, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, just the number of decisions that are made by a CEO um, or some other leadership that after months of planning and, and data and talking to the customers and prospects and everything else, what happens, Matt? Yeah, it gets kicked. <laughs> it gets kicked or they decide that, you know, we're going to go with the color brown because that's my favorite color. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's, seriously, it's, a, it's amazing. We've had to put processes in place to, to try to eliminate as much of that as we can. It's, it's, it's seriously amazing how you can work four months on a project and have everyone on board and it'd be probably what you feel is one of your best uh, projects yet. And then to have one person come in and say that, that by the way, said that they didn't want to be involved in this kind of stuff. And then for them to come in and just like shut the whole pro uh, you know, the whole thing down. I remember that happened one time with, we were working on a project with MTV, um, you know, the old music television and that kind of thing happened. We were working they don't on show videos. <laughs> they haven't shown videos in like 20 years. <laughs> but anyway, like that, that's the same thing that happened. You know, everybody approved and it got to that one final person. And it, this was like not a, a cheap project. And they basically just, ate it so it's just it's mind-blowing that kind of stuff but anyway it happens so yeah and i think i'll wrap this kind of section up amanda is there a i know there's not a silver bullet but is there one skill trick um thing that you've learned over the years that maybe doesn't work 100 percent of the time but if you're in a meeting or you're working on a project and you feel that there's this one person or maybe a small group that is against something have you figured out anything that you can always at least try that might work i would say uh the most important lesson and one that i've had to internalize lately uh to a high degree is don't accept no. Um, so you would be amazed at how often no is actually a gateway to yes. You just have to keep challenging it and understanding and requiring that the other party, whether it's you know an internal conversation or external conversation, uh, that the other party actually explains why the objection exists. Because if you keep digging and you keep challenging, you might find a place to come to an agreement. So. Don't just take no as the answer bluntly and certainly don't take the first no. There is a lot of room to be made by just continuing the conversation and digging a little deeper. Have you found with there not being the ability of being in a meeting with someone, now it's a Zoom call usually, um, or whatever you know service you use, have you found it harder to go after a meeting, someone goes no, in the past, you could be like folding up your computer or whatever, and then you go and talk to that person specifically after a meeting. 
Has it become harder to try to get more additional insight outside of the group from people? I mean, it probably has, but you're, again, it's sort of a, a weird conversation to ask me because I'm the head of North America for a company that's, that's new to the US and I talk to people via Zoom constantly. Normally London, sometimes Edinburgh, sometimes uh, Singapore. That is true. But yeah, constantly. So I have to learn to have those conversations, uh, you know, just one-to-one. -one. Uh, but I would say the one-to-one -one conversation is a one-to-one -one conversation, regardless of the format it takes. And it's really on you. I mean, that going back to the military and firefighting, uh, one of the things that I think they're both very good at is uh, teaching you that you should never be looking for work. Like there's always something else that you can be doing. And as long as you're self-motivated and you recognize your responsibility to getting the mission accomplished, whatever it is, you should be taking the initiative to go and have that one-on-one -on -one conversation. And it doesn't matter if you're in the same room. That's true. Um, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. You currently are kind of leading a team manager, leader, head leadership, but you've also been a founder of a couple projects, companies. Um, has that impacted like how you interview and hire people? Oh, probably. I mean, I've, I've never, Without uh, thinking about it. Yeah. It's, I think that my interview style will always and forever be informed by, um, assessing whether or not this is somebody that I would hire personally. So whether I'm working within an organization or on my own, it's still, is this someone that I want and I can see myself working with? you know, late into the night, trying to hash out some issue, trying to get something shipped. Uh, and, you know, whether, again, whether it's a bootstrapped entity that I happen to own or a venture-backed entity that I happen to be working within, it's still the same. I still need the same kind of individual. I know that I'm not going to be able to work with someone who uh, just wants to work a nine to five. I know that somebody that um, they're going to get real tired of me. That's the way I'll put it. <laughs> I definitely have a higher expectation on the performance of others because I have that higher expectation of myself. Uh, and it's really not about extracting value. It's about wanting to be surrounded with other people who are mission driven and challenge you. Do you think part of the difference in how you, um, I know you said you didn't really, you know, kind of think about it, but as a, as a founder of the company, you probably think about something and you're kind of doing it right now in a way. You're thinking about not just what you're working on project-wise this month, this quarter, or even Q4, but you're thinking about next year. Sure. When you're doing hiring and talking to people and even thinking about which which roles and what the headcount should look like now and in four months and eight months, you have a much longer term view. Do you think when you talk to people or even think about any of the headcount and stuff, that changes from when you're a manager to the founder? And have you ever noticed that? So I think that um, the big difference between, for many people, between being a, a founder or a manager within another organization is buy-in. Um, basically, you can you can uh, accept some forms of lack, you know, for for no other way to put it, uh, if it's not your dollars on the line. I personally don't. I'm still looking for the same kind of quality people, but sure, you absolutely could. Um, being a founder, or in this case, being the, the head of, of North America, implicitly means that I'm trying to think about things with a multi-year view, and I don't have the luxury 
of spending a lot of money on recruiting dollars to have employees that will churn in 12 months, 18 months, even 24 months. And, you know, especially for venture-backed companies, I'm sure in both New York City and San Francisco and probably elsewhere, that's an increasing problem. You'll see churn at points as people vest. And then when they're fully vested, they'll go and work for some other hot startup because they're essentially creating for themselves uh, a portfolio uh, by working, you know, two to four year stints in various companies. And it's not a bad strategy. Uh, I understand why they do it, but I need people that really buy into it or we're never going to have the kind of uh, liquidity event that might ensure their portfolio actually has value. We actually need mission driven people. Yeah. What is it, Matt, we've talked about before, the CMOs and CEOs, like it's gone down to like 18 months or something like yeah, that for CMOs. In the agency world, I know, Amanda, you worked a little bit in that space, but I think the average is like a year and a half to two. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's hard to imagine being able to ship anything of, of real substantive value in that time. I mean, yeah, you can definitely bring campaigns, uh, you know, to market in 30 days. But when you're talking about actually creating products that are innovative for a space or for a wide addressable market, whatever it is, 18 months is not going to get it done. Well, for this project, for Curve, when did you start? And you're talking about a beta launch mm -hmm. in Q1 next year? No, beta launch for the end of this year. <laughs> What's that? Beta launch for the end of this year. Oh, the end of this year. Yeah. And that'll be a, what, a year or so of just you working on it or? So I've actually got other people on the team now. That's pretty fantastic. Um, I initially started working for Curve uh, because I was an advisor to the venture capital fund that led their B-Round. Um, so my initial engagement with Curve was, was strictly in that capacity. And uh, actually going back to the power of no, um, the CEO of Curve asked me to come aboard and to relocate to London to build out a completely different uh, product line within the product uh, back last summer. And I said, no, not once, not twice, but three times. And the last time in person uh, in New York when he happened to be there, he didn't hear it. <laughs> I think he acknowledged it, but he didn't hear it. And uh, as they got the needed permissions uh, or, or whatever they needed to be in place to enter the US market with uh, an analogous product, he asked me if I would like to actually head that effort up. And I jumped at that. It's a the opportunity with Curve is fantastic because it's a size and scale that I've not been able to achieve on my own. And I think that the product is actually the right idea at the right time. Um, so that's personally why I'm, here, why I'm here. For the first three months or so of that engagement, it was literally about city selection. Um, developed an enormous spreadsheet, no different actually, uh, just a little bit more complex um, on how I ended up moving to the center of Pennsylvania. I developed a spreadsheet to try and figure out where the best place for Curve would be in the United States. I didn't just accept that Manhattan was the right answer or San Francisco. Um, and then we actually set up some in-person meetings in Charlotte, Austin, and uh, here in New York um, before making that choice. Uh, the first part of this year, just to kind of give you an idea on how long it takes stuff to get done, was launching the office, getting the legal ducks in a row for establishing a new company in the US, all that stuff takes time, and then the initial recruiting push. So we've got a fantastic product lead um, who was previously the SVP of payments at a fintech called Pedal, and before that worked for JP Morgan Chase and American Express, and basically shores up a whole lot of information that, uh, that I don't have on the payment space. He's a subject matter expert. 
Um, now we're actually starting to do the hard work of things like building a wait list. And I know that all of the marketers that listen to this will totally understand what it's like to assemble something that has a viral loop component in it that people want to get excited about. They want to share. Now we're starting the process of link building and PR and, and there's a lot of marketing involved. Um, that's the, the track that I'm sort of paying attention to while product, we're thinking heavily about product construct and just getting all of the constituent parts in place. So we're talking vendor relationships between issuing bin sponsors, processors, acquirers, um, fulfillment, like how you actually get a card to somebody in the mail. All of those individual parts have to be chosen. The commercials have to be negotiated. Then the integration work has to be done on, on the back end of that. Those all take time and there's more time built into it than you might think because there's it's financial products. So there's due diligence involved with several of those partners. That's why it doesn't, it's not something you can just turn on in 30 days and be ready to go. It actually does take time, especially if you're going to do it right. I think we marketers are very now, now, now. And Matt, we just, we just recorded and pushed a couple weeks ago, technically when we're recording this, not, not so long ago, but we just did, um, an episode that talked about that that handshake between marketing and sales and how yeah. there's finger pointing sometimes um but there's also that between marketing and product yeah like absolutely you know if it if it's if it's a junk product marketing go go sell it no it's so difficult and i mean that's i'm going to give you part of the pitch deck but basically um the way that I've been telling, because it's an education process, right, from a US-based marketing perspective backwards to the UK-based holding entity, the way that you enter or really make hay of the US with finite dollars, which every venture capital-backed company should believe that they have finite dollars. They don't all think they do. They should believe and operate on that basis. Um, but with finite dollars, the way to get maximum value out of it is actually to uh, and I'm going to borrow a, a new cool term, but is product-led marketing, which is to say that the product itself is so compelling that you want to tell someone else about it. And frankly, that the value proposition is simple enough that you can explain it easily. I think what a ton of people don't appreciate, whether they're in the advertising space or the marketing space or the product space, frankly, is that all ad dollars are like, uh, all roads lead to Rome. All ad dollars fundamentally have to get to a product that's valuable enough for someone else to tell someone else about it, or you're going to be constantly pouring money into the top of the funnel. There's no two ways about it. They have to lead to word of mouth. Uh, who here has heard about hay? Uh, yeah, I've definitely heard about hay. Yeah. I mean, how much advertising dollars did they put behind that versus just the crazy amount of word of mouth and... The, the product. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I happen That's to follow DHH on Twitter, so I know about Hay from, from the source. But yeah, no, I've, I've also heard about Hay. I can't tell you how many times in the last week. <laughs> I, I haven't been able to turn on Twitter for a couple of days now without seeing that pop up at some point. Yep, I agree. And, I, and how many impressions are they getting, whether they count them or not, from that product-led marketing, basically, from just the talking about it? Yeah, exactly. And the other part that you know is easily missed is that that is the most important kind of marketing. Third-party authority is going to outsell your crappy infomercial or direct response campaign or your targeted advertising or your Facebook ad 10 ways till Tuesday. It just will. 
if your mom says, hey, I tried this product and it's actually pretty good, you're probably gonna pay attention because your mom doesn't often give you product recommendations. If you know your TV or Facebook tells you about this hot new whiz bang, whatever it is that somebody is rebrokering from wish.com, not that compelling, not that interesting. You know, I don't know why that uh, reminds me of something I think you'll get a kick out of this, but I don't know if you remember back in the day when Pinterest was first coming online. I actually have, have one of my neighbors, he was recruited by Google several times and he actually uh, turned him down and he went to this lesser known startup called Pinterest. He was one of the first engineers there, but uh, he gave me access to Pinterest like right away. And I had no idea like it was going to be what it was. And I, I had a limited amount of, because uh, if you remember back in the day, they used to give uh, invites out and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I had an unlimited amount of invites that I could give to people. And I, the only time I think I got close to getting a divorce with my wife was when she found out that I'd been sitting on these um, invitations that she, I had no idea she had been wanting one for six months, like so bad. And when she found out that like I had them, um, things got a little tense in the household. But <laughs> <laughs> You're holding out Pinterest from your wife. Yeah, and I had no idea, but I had no idea like this, and, and this kind of goes to what you're talking about, just like that that interest, and you got that family member or whatever, but it was just amazing for me to see that what they had done and this interest that they had built up, and it, it was just like, that's whenever this kind of stuff like kind of dawned on me, like the light went off, but yeah, that was, I, I, I laugh every time I think about that and how she like yelled at me because I had this invite and she'd been waiting forever, but anyway. <laughs> I mean, it might... My data might be dated, but I love the quote, the stat that the U.S. is like 4% of the world's population and a third of its ad spend. Like if you're just doing CPA based paid marketing, you're going to lose. Like it's going to be a long timeline. You might have some money to pour into the top of the funnel, but eventually you're going to lose. You need to get, if you're a brand or a product or represent a brand or a product, I mean, affiliates and things like that are accepted. Everyone else though, if you're a brand or a product, you need to get to word of mouth. The yeah. faster, the better. Along those lines, nice transition without even knowing it. So <laughs> your background is heavily, and, and speaking just from what I know of your background, is very digital. How going from just digital to the leadership to overseeing traditional digital and like anything and everything, how did that go from you know being the doer <laughs> to leading? You're like, oh, how much time do you have, Dave? No, I, I was like, my background is very varied, so I'm curious to see which, which part of it you want to talk about. Um, yes, I know. Uh, yes, okay, that's very inclusive. Um, I know. So honestly, that is uh, not a strength. I have always been an operator, and being a non-operator is very hard. Uh, I would say that for other people that are control freaks, um, it's probably going to be a difficult road and it's something you're going to have to be really intentional about. Uh, but if you know how attribution is supposed to work and you see a broken attribution model, or if you know how Google Analytics is supposed to look and you see that a subdomain is not being included, it's frustrating and <laughs> you want to jump in. Um, but yeah, the transition from being the actual operator uh, and doer, whatever you might call it, to being the person that instead marshals forces and directs them towards a common goal has been a difficult one mostly on on that side um, because when you are a subject matter expert you have to to learn to cede control 
And have you seated control? Or yeah. do you still kind of go, yeah, hold on. 99% of the time, yes. I'm pretty good about it now. Uh, if you talked to me maybe two, four years ago, not as good not about so it. Not so much. Yeah, no. It was a long road. Um, but uh, here's, I'm going to make a probably a, it's a questionable reference, but <laughs> for reasons that'll be obvious, there's a John Rockefeller quote where he said something like, I would rather earn 1% of 100 people's efforts than 100% of my own efforts, or 100% of the money on my own efforts, which I appreciate. That's a super capitalistic statement, and there are lots of reasons to, to not feel warm and fuzzy about that. But from a, and a trying to achieve a big goal standpoint, he is exactly right. Because if you're able to lead and direct a larger group of people uh, or a larger group of resources, regardless of their people or money or whatever it is, into the same direction, you're just going to have a magnitude of order uh, impact on scale. So what it really comes down to is recognizing your own limitations, be they time, be they knowledge. Um, you know, it became very popular maybe five, five-ish years ago to talk about the concept of a T-shaped marketer because there are a lot of people out there that say that they're fantastic. Uh, PPC manager or a fantastic Facebook ads person or a fantastic, fantastic SEO or technical SEO. Nobody does each of those things exceptionally well. Everybody does one of those things. Well, not everybody. Most people who are very competent do one of those categories very well and have an understanding of how the rest of it sort of ties in. You have to have that awareness, uh, self-awareness yourself as a leader and then be able to seed control to all the things that you're not good at, marshal the forces of other people that might actually be better than you at several of these things. And by all means, go hire people that are smarter than you. It really helps um, in the same direction. Like that fundamentally is what being a leader is. It's to sort of compel people into a shared vision and moving, by your example, moving everyone in the same direction towards a common goal. I love that you said that because that's uh, something I always joke about with uh... With our agency at Avalanche, I, you know, always tell people like, because I have one business partner, you know, we got, one's got a, uh, a master's, one's got his doctorate, and another one has his MBA, and uh, I have just a two-year degree, and uh, I said the thing that I, the, the smartest thing that I've done with, the, with founding this company was surrounding myself with people smarter than me, and uh, so I love hearing that, it's good validation, but anyway, it's true. It is totally true. And I would also say uh, the point that you weren't making specifically, but the smartest people that I've hired for various roles in the past often didn't have a degree in whatever that discipline was. I mean, almost never have a degree in it. I, I, yeah. So several companies ago, um, I was leading content and marketing at uh, engineer jobs and hired a series of writers to help basically bolster out the content that I had initially started. Like I, I set the table, I, I created most of the first parts or the first year's worth of content and then hired other writers to sort of continue to build out from there. I hired somebody that I've known since childhood who has no degree in anything and he was absolutely exceptional. Uh, and I also hired a former CNN journalist who's got some very fantastic awards behind her that just couldn't write for the web. Like it's wow. a skill that uh, is difficult to to quantify in a job description, but you know, writing for a web is a very specific writing for a web-based audience, especially if you're doing long, meaty, evergreen articles for the purposes of ranking organically, is a very oh, specific true. skill that not everybody has. I happen to hire uh, somebody that I've known for years that 
has now, I think he's actually working as a chief content officer somewhere, which is exactly what he should be doing. That's cool. I had a point, but we've moved on far, far, <laughs> far from that one. Sorry. <laughs> it happens but, here. Oh, no. But actually, it, it goes to probably the, the last kind of section we'll talk about unless we get sidetracked, which is always possible. Um, generalist versus specialist debate on hiring. You just kind of somewhat answered it, but you really don't seem to care about someone's background and, and almost seem to prefer maybe a generalist, or maybe is that just you think we all should acknowledge that we aren't all specialists in every single thing? Oh, definitely. We're not all specialists in everything. So yeah, be self-aware. Be self-aware first before you start critiquing others, but there's no achievable way, especially with you know the internet moving it dog years, everything changes, you know, multiple times a year, there's no way that you can be an expert at all of it. Um, with respect to hiring, do I prefer specialists or generalists? I would say it really depends upon the role. But the thing that I look for most, especially for anything that has to deal with the web or apps, um, because they change so frequently is someone who's an autodidact. I am very, very, very large uh, advocate for autodidacticism um, or mentoring. But either way, acquiring the knowledge in real time because it's going to change underfoot. You can't hire somebody for the site that they built 10 years ago. You need to hire somebody for the site they built this month or the content they created this month or the Facebook ads campaign that they launched this month or have the potential to come up to speed on. The potential is more difficult to see. Usually you can evaluate potential based on the rate of acceleration in their previous roles, whatever they might've been. Um, especially if they have repeated the demonstrations in their background or in the interview it comes up, uh, coming up to speed on something very quickly, that person is going to do well um, if you give them something new to learn. Generally speaking, history is the best predictor, excuse me, history is the best predictor of the future. Um, so that's something that I definitely look for. But yeah, no, big, big fan of people that can educate themselves and come up to speed quickly. I think that that's the exact kind of person you're going to need on your team. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they've got degrees in their background. The number of times when I've interviewed people, um, I think it was like one example was when I was interviewing for junior entry level uh, web developer. You just had to know some ASP, maybe some PHP, have some basic skills because my graphic designer was spending half of his time coding and I was supposed to be doing everything else digital, but I was spending half of my time coding and we just needed someone to come in and take the grunt coding work off our hands. That's it. Really basic. No senior coder is going to want to come in and babysit code. That is every developer's nightmare. So we were talking or I was talking to a lot of people that were entry level or in, in straight out of school. And the one question I asked all of them was, what do you do to you know, continue learning. And I've asked SEOs the same question. And if you're a developer or an app developer or designer, and you're not doing, whether it's freelance or if you're not building sites and breaking them, if you're not trying to, you know, write, if you're a writer, if you're not writing just to write something in a different And your answer to those kinds of questions is, well, I took a class on this or in my old job, we only worked on this CMS, so I don't know any others. Um, or I've only ever written for B2B, or I've only ever written this, I've never written a white paper. Well, why don't you go and find something, or at least try? The people that don't go out and actively continue try to teach themselves, whether it's content, social media, 
really any engineering or marketing or anything always scared me because I was always scared that they they were relying on just what they were doing nine to five and just what they'd learned in those maybe four to six hours of a day. And when PHP is no longer the hot one and we now need someone that can do React and JS or now we, we need someone that understands APIs or at least has done something like that. If you've never expanded on your own time, I was like, how are you? I, I'm not going to pay you all day to learn. You need to do a little bit on your own. Yeah. I just never understood that. I, I completely agree. And also the person that stays up to date is genuinely interested in what they do. Like there, there's something to be said for that. I am not a subscriber to the notion that you need to do what you love, but you need to be interested in it enough to continue to stay up to date on it. I think the do what you love thing gets a lot of people caught. Um, it, it keeps them from starting something that's profitable. Yeah, I don't love video, but I keep playing around with video stuff because I know that's where, like, we have a podcast, but we now have it on YouTube. Um, and But there's more and more video with Instagram and LinkedIn's going video. Facebook has got the live, um, Twitch, YouTube. Like, everyone's doing more and more video. So for me, I need I don't need to be an expert in it, but speaking to the T-shaped, I do need to understand some basics of when someone goes, no, you can't do that, or yes, we can, I can at least understand that, oh, from a scoping standpoint, or from the content, or how long are we going to need, or what is the impact to our SEO, I have an idea. I don't need to be an expert, but I need to at least know from my head, from my butt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if I had any other questions off the top of my head. I think we covered a lot. If you were to give yourself, you're going to laugh at this one. Um, I don't know, 10 years ago, what, what would one thing, what would you tell yourself as far as a leadership or, you know, maybe not do go on that date or whatever, but um, what was one thing you would tell yourself? Um, I what advice you'd give yourself? The, the first piece of advice I would have given myself is to put more money into the stock market. Oh, there's that. Hi, yeah. <laughs> Amazon, darn it. But buy all the stocks you can possibly buy. I would have sold my Tesla at $38 a share. Ouch. Oh, buy Bitcoin. Uh, that would have been another piece of advice. No. Oh, there you go. So, and not so, buy a pizza with Bitcoin. Oh, that poor guy. I would beat <laughs> oh, myself up yeah. every day. Um, so I would have said, uh, trust your instincts more and swing bigger sooner. I think that there's... A, a false notion, and maybe it's just something that women feel that you really have to be a subject matter expert on something in order to get started. Completely crap. Um, you can definitely, and, and this kind of runs contrary to what we were just talking about with on the job training, but people are hired for potential all the time. Uh, people do things that are absolutely insane that they're not supposed to do, like start companies from a dorm room that rival Silicon Valley backed companies like Friendster. Um, on day one and succeed. You really should take some big swings uh, earlier because we're all here for a finite amount of time. You have a finite amount of working hours. You'll have a finite amount of, of working years in your career. And the people that usually win are the ones that were willing to take and stomach the biggest risks soonest. Very good. Well, think about uh, baseball because we're not going to have baseball this year, I don't think. If you hit 320 in baseball, you're, you, you can be an all-star. Yep. And can we, by the way, talk about what an enormous missed opportunity that is for baseball? 
I was thinking about it for NASCAR. NASCAR and baseball have both seen huge declines in viewership and, and fandom for our lifetimes, um, especially versus what they were in our parents' and our grandparents' lifetimes. Well, not NASCAR, but Major League Baseball for sure. This would have been a moment for them if they had been able to put together a league with a wrapped audience, sports-starved, um, in lockdown, no watching loads of TV for the last <laughs> 10 weeks. This could have been their moment to really shore up fandom and, and win new fans on an unprecedented level. And the fact that they were not able to come to terms because they couldn't come to agreement is just a huge missed opportunity. And I think you're right. There's there there was that opportunity for new fans or people that were like, I've never liked sports because you're getting to the point now, and this is a lot of the people that I've talked to, they've reached the point that they've watched all the shows that they can watch on Netflix or all the ones that they're interested in or Hulu or whatever. And so I think that you're absolutely right. You have that opportunity to win new fans. And that's something I'm glad that you said it because they're uh, the people that were actually in the, the stands were, were on decline anyway. So yeah, exactly. I mean, to, to quote Cardi B, uh, they're making money moves. They're definitely, uh, I mean, just the moves that they've made in the last two weeks have been very significant, banning the Confederate flag, being more inclusive, uh, and certainly being the first sport back to airing something live is yep. going to end up paying dividends for them for years. Uh, it just, it was such a bonehead move on the MLB's part. I don't understand why they didn't capitalize on this obvious opportunity. Yep. I agree. Well, Dave, uh, do you have any final uh, thoughts or questions? I look forward to the PLL coming soon. Professional <laughs> lacrosse league. They, uh, <laughs> unlike baseball, they actually switched their schedule. Instead of multiple weeks, they're going to do a two-week tournament all in the same spot. So all the guys will be in the same spot and doing the tournament. So they're still going to have a season. So, yeah, to, to your initial thing, Manda, it's like, no. Well, no, no. No. Well, that might work. Yeah, exactly. Just got to keep asking. And NBC is probably just throwing tons of money at it because they need sports. So they've got NBC going to air it live on NBC, not just, you know, some sub NBC, one of their cable brands, but they're going to be airing it live on the weekends because there is no sports. Think about all of the advertising dollars that are currently sitting on the sidelines that would have otherwise been allocated to sports right now, and that would happily advertise against literally any sport. Golf. I'm not a golf fan, so I I can bash on it. But really, like golf would have a wrapped audience right now, and people will spend lots of money because they just don't have the opportunity to throw money, you know, those dollars at any other live sport. Or any audience, really. Yeah, exactly. All right. We well, talked about sports. We're good. <laughs> Amanda, I really appreciate you taking the time and chatting all this. There's there's so many. I, I hope that our, our listeners appreciate because there's so many amazing things that, that were talked about. And so I do appreciate you taking the time to uh, come in and, uh, and share your information and your knowledge with us. Absolutely. Anytime. I'm happy to chat. I'm super active thank on you, Twitter. Thank you. All right, well, for Amanda Orson with Curb and Dave Roar with Northside Metrics, I'm Matt Soltola with Avalanche Media, and thank you guys for listening, and we'll catch you on another one of these episodes. Bye, guys. Thanks. Bye.